Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, 7 a.m., a vision for you big book study. My name is Amy G., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Today's date is Wednesday, September 9th, 2020, and today we are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we are on page four, the third paragraph that starts with the sentence, we went to live with my wife's parents just unpacking that one paragraph only. Today's readers are, and thank you, Team Wednesday, Reva P., Leon B., Carmela G., Alicia N., Esther F., and our newcomer greeter is Tanya G., and the host for our second unrecorded hour, Nancy P. The reference numbers for yesterday's 7 a.m. meeting, September 8th, Tuesday, September 8th, is 15,310. That's 15310. And the 10 a.m. Eastern, Tuesday's meeting yesterday, 15,312. That's 15312. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's mission states, has but one primary purpose, to carry the message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Vision for you, Big Book Study, people who suffer from compulsive overeating can, through absence, the practice of the 12 dish of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask for Alicia Ann to read the 12 steps. Good morning. I'm Alicia Ann, a recovered compulsive overeater in Richmond, Virginia. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. I'm grateful to serve. 
Thank you, Alicia N. I will now ask for Esther F. to go ahead and read the 12 traditions. Go ahead, Esther. Thank you. Hi, this is Esther F., a recovered compulsive overeater from Cleveland, Ohio. The 12 traditions. Number one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OE unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority. A loving God is he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OM membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, television, and other public media of communication. And 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me do service, and I pass. Thank you so much, Esther. Okay, how are meeting Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and the literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our absence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no absence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study in the big book. We are on page four. We're on the third paragraph, beginning with the sentence, we want to live with my life, my wife's parents. Reva P., could you get us started, please? Sure, good morning. This is Reva P., Grateful Recovered Compulsive Overeater. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage firms. Um, 
So um, this paragraph to me is showing me the progression of the disease. And it's progressing not just physically. Um, his life is deteriorating economically, socially, his marriage, emotionally, and definitely spiritually. And how humiliating for somebody who a few paragraphs ago was golfing with some pro golfer um, and having this impeccable um, coat of tan at the golf clubs and whirling in fat checks to go live with his wife's parents um, and to have his wife in those days work to earn some money in a department store. Um, so it's just showing um, how life deteriorates faster than I can lower my standards um, when I'm living in the disease. And it also strikes me how, you know, at first it was one paragraph his life was up, the next paragraph his life was down, like the EKG, life goes up, down, up, down. Here within one paragraph, I got a job, I lost it. Like it's, the progression is faster and more severe. It's like that tornado, the disease just gets faster and deeper and, and, and worse and worse. Um, and the word that struck me the most in this paragraph is hanger on. So hanger on is somebody who's like, like a leech, like a parasite, like a follower. Um, and that just reminds me of that grabbiness, um, feeling like I had to hang on to people. You know, I could barely make, well, I couldn't make it through a day without my, um, without my binges, um, but grabbing on to people um, and trying to get something from others because I just didn't have it in me um, to do, to be productive. Um, so again, this reminds me the disease is so much more than the physical. It just deteriorates everything, everything, all areas of my life. Um, and you know, Recovery is also the same. It starts off where I think I'm just focusing on the food, but as I work the steps in entire abstinence, recovery also starts affecting every area of my life, and life grows and expands. And as it says here, you know, we get to recreate our lives. Um, and we just celebrated. Um, we had to cancel my daughter's wedding, but we had a backyard ceremony with immediate family, and it just was a reminder of the expansion um, of my life. There are people in my life that I love and care about, um, and, and that's a result of um, working the steps, and with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Reva, for getting us started. Okay, so for those who would like to share, we'd love to hear from you. But if you shared on Monday or Tuesday, we greatly appreciate you holding off so others could share their experience, strength, and hope as well. So who would like to share on what was read? Harlan G. Gotcha, Harlan. Larry K. Larry. Gotcha. Anybody else? Carmela G. Carmela. Roz G. Roz G. Roz G. R-O-Z. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyone else? 
Okay, let's get started. Harlan G., Larry K., Carmela G., and Roz G. Harlan, it's your time. Harlan, are you there? Please go ahead. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay. Thank you, Amy, and thanks to Team Wednesday. I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. Let's take a look at some of the things that are happening here, and let's take a look at how they're affecting him. We went to live with my wife's parents. Let's remember that Lois Burnham was who Bill married, and Dr. Burnham was Lois's dad, and he was a doctor. He was a gynecologist and a surgeon, and he was also a genetics doctor. Lois suffered two ectopic pregnancies. The second of which in the spring of 1930 resulted in massive, massive hemorrhaging and bleeding, and she had to have an emergency hysterectomy, and the Wilsons would never have children, except for all of us. Um, and Dr. Wils, Dr. Burnham came over to his daughter's home when she called and said, Daddy, I can't get the bleeding to stop. Could you please come over? And he comes over and he leaves a note on the kitchen table at about 6 p.m. and says, Bill, we're taking Lois to Roosevelt Hospital. Please make sure you get there as quickly as you possibly can. Nine ten o'clock the next morning, Bill shows up at the hospital, he reeks of urine, he reeks of vomit, he's been drinking all day, he is wearing the same clothes from the night before, he stinks to high hell, and Dr. Burnham is livid with him. Where in the world have you been? My God, he says to him. And Bill was drunk, and from that time on, Bill and the Burnhams just never, ever got along. Dr. Burnham really never forgave him. And this is who he's going to live with. Bill, uh, Bill also, now you gotta rem- we have to remember that in, 19, in the 1930s, the culture of our world was very different than today. He had a wife that worked at Macy's department store as an interior decorator, standing on her feet making $19 a week, plus commission she was bringing home $26 a week. He stayed home drunk. That was very disgraceful. Remember, he's the guy that had arrived. He was the guy from Wall Street. He was the guy living on Park Avenue. He was the guy that was the power driver. Page two, it says, though my drinking was not yet continuous. Page three, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. Page four, um, golf permitted drinking every day and every night. Now he can't draw a sober breath. So we see the progression of the disease. We see, as, as Reva mentioned, the destruction, the arson and vandalism that alcoholism is wreaking upon his life. We see every area of his life getting worse and worse and worse. And we're going to see that the recovery, of course, we're not going to see it for a while, but we're going to see that the recovery will resurrect these things. I'm out of time here, but I'll just close by saying this. This is the beginning of the darkest of times for Bill Wilson. Lois is working. He is not and he is drunk around the clock all the time. And with that, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan. Thank you so much. Larry Kay, it's your turn. 
please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Amy. Uh, Larry Kay recovered this morning. So I'm going to pick up on what Harlan shared. You know, um, this this is all about identification. That there is there's someone on this line, perhaps, you know, that's also living with their parents, grown people, uh, with friends, so forth. And it's not just because of the economics of the situation. If they're honest with themselves, as I had to be at times, it was the eating, the progression of this disease that manifested itself in so many different ways. But if we look back, you know, um, we take a look at what's going on during the Great Depression, you know, yes, massive numbers of people became unemployed and, and the economy lost uh, an incomprehensible amount of, of money and, and it lasted really up until World War II. But it, to put it in our terms, Bill, he was binging his brains out uh, every day. And it was similar to us as though he was hitting the, the fast food restaurants and the convenience stores and, you know, parked behind the grocery stores and so forth. And throughout the day, he was hardly drawing a sober breath, just like us. And yet we have a hard time identifying in sometimes. But it's really the same. And to make matters worse, of course, you know, we read he couldn't hold a job. And he and Lois moved in with the Burnhams, as, as Harlan mentioned. And, and this had to be quite a blow to Bill's false pride, right? It's not like today where we, you know, we more commonly see you know, people moving in with parents and so forth. But in the 1930s, much like divorce, it was rarely seen, right? Um, and Lois spent years making excuses. Can you imagine the excuses she was making for Bill? And she was kind of forced in her own pride to cover up for his behavior when he was drinking. No different than 2020. Do people make excuses for our eating and our, and our behaviors? Absolutely. And we see where Bill's alcoholism takes him. See, if we fast forward, Bill and Lois were forced to, to leave, uh, eventually leave the Burnham's home. Lois's father left the house, eventually left the house to them several years prior, but they couldn't keep up with the payments. And the home eventually was foreclosed upon, and they had to rent the house for a while, the bank, uh, but they couldn't keep up with the payments, and the, and the home was eventually sold. And Bill and Lois then will see that they live like nomads for years, you know, and, and now Lois is working at Macy's. She's earning peanuts like Harlan talked about and Reva and she, but she never stopped loving Bill. And I'm really impressed. She believed in him even through the progression of this disease. And we can only imagine just like our partners and our family, the feelings of shame and anger and humiliation and fear as his actions get worse, just like ours. Again, we see the progression of this disease. I'm inspired by Lois when I read this stuff because I can't, as my time is done there, Amy, she survived Bill by 17 years, but she worked for the rest of her life developing things like Stepping Stones and Al-Anon and all the rest. I'm grateful for that. With that, I pass. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Larry Kay. Carmela G., it is your turn. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Amy. This is Carmela G., a grateful compulsive that either recovered from New York. Um, when I listened to Reva read, I was thinking, where is that self-confident, I, I, I man? He was such an egotist. And now he's reduced to having 
to live with people who really didn't even like him, let alone love him. And it was hitting him in the face. I'm a failure. But yet we lie, we lie. I lied so long to myself. The denial, and when I had to face the honesty, it has to go really deep. When we work these steps, we have to get in there and dig deep into our heart and let those feelings, that feeling of, wow, am I such a loser? No, I was on top of the mountain. I had a great career. No, Bill was feeling that real deepness. And the only thing that's going to help him out now is to get into these steps and live in them. And the same with us. Did I feel that loneliness and despair? Yes. Did I find a way? Yes. It was the steps. By working the steps, I regained, I realized, yes, I am a loving, kind, worthwhile person because there is a power greater than myself. That second step, the solution and my acceptance of it. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carmela. Okay, Roz G, your turn. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Roz G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Palmdale, California. And this reminds me of a time in my life. Um, I lived in an alcoholic marriage. And uh, my husband and I had a beautiful home that we bought, but we had no clue as to what owning a home meant and the responsibilities that came with it. And eventually we lost the home. And we moved into this this dingy apartment on the east side of, of town that was um, just a uh, really difficult neighborhood. And uh, I stopped working and uh, was, you know, depending upon my husband for income and to take care of us. And that didn't work out after a while. And um, we, we got on um, welfare and food stamps. But, you know, it didn't, it it didn't it didn't matter I, I was still able to eat the point here i want to make is is that i still found a way to to be a, to eat to eat my troubles away and there was a hostess secondhand bread store in the neighborhood and that's where i would go to get um the all the bread and going in that store was kind of like a it was like a little haven for me because it was secondhand. It was discounted. There was donuts and Twinkies and all kinds of different breads and just it's just the bread the bread stop, you know. And even though we were poor, uh, food stamps was it was my um, it was able to support my eating habit. And of course, you know that my excuse was well, it's cheap. We'll go there and I can get uh, groceries for the kids. 
But for a person who was, for a family who was in poverty, American standard poverty, um, and broke for the most part, uh, it didn't, it didn't, that didn't affect me where I, I still was able to um, support my habit. And those were the, probably the deepest, darkest days of when my eating really got bad. And it, it was humiliating because we were broke a lot. And like with Bill having, you know, his, his, his parents supporting, his wife's parents living with them, how humiliating for a man. I was always going to my mother uh, for grocery money. Um, it just, oh, it was just, you know, just thinking about that period of my life was, was really bad. But the hope was is that in 2002, I, I found myself at an OA meeting, my very first OA meeting um, on January, in the first week of January, looking for that New Year's resolution. And it's taken me many, many years to become abstinent. And about a, over, over a year of abstinence I have now. And so much hope and such a, a changed life. It's just incredible how my life has, has changed. Uh, but, you know, this, I like going back to these paragraphs and, and it reminds me of, of some of the miserable times that I had. Yet, Bill was still with, you know, Lois found him drunk. I sure had enough to eat. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roz. Okay, so just a friendly reminder, we are on page four, the third paragraph, and we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to share and haven't shared on Monday and Tuesday. Please go ahead. Tina S. Tina. Gotcha. You taking names? Karen K. Tom A. Craig F. Craig F. W. Leia T. Uh, moderator, please unmute yourself. Hello, Amy. Okay, okay hello, sorry, folks. It looks like I was muted for some reason. No problem. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. So I missed I missed someone after Tina S. I have Tina S, Sharon K, Leah T, Craig F, F W, but there was somebody I missed. Okay. Well, we'll go with that and if I missed you, we'll get you next round. Okay, Tina, please go ahead. Thanks so much, Amy, for your service. Uh, Tina S., Recovered Compulsive Eater, anorexic in Florida. Wow, I heard some really great stuff this morning. You know, initially when I'd read this 
paragraph, I think, well, you know, I really can't relate. I, you know, I left home early on uh, and all this kind of stuff. But what I do know, my experience is that, you know, I lived with people, you know, I got in, in uh, relationships based on whether you could support me or not, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and I, had, I did things that, you know, that I didn't really want to do or didn't really want to be there, but I was because it supported my addiction. You know, and, and I remember the last time I, I got uh, abstinent in um, 1999, I was in a relationship that, you know, I just got in that relationship because by that time, you know, my anorexia, which, you know, I came in initially as a compulsive eater and through coming in and coming out, you know, I learned some skills, <laughs> good or bad, but they brought me to my knees that this time, you know, that I, um, you know, I, I was lost, you know, and uh, I was in my throes of my anorexia and therefore my, my world was very, very small. I did have a job, but I was so, you know, I had to, I just went to work and then went home and then I was just so controlling and, you know, everything had to be just my way and I was just miserable and I really, and at the time, you know, and this is my experience, I was sober at the time, so I was working with, a, with an AA sponsor who was like, you know, let's do these steps and you need to get out of that relationship, you need to get out of that house, but I could not because I was getting from that place uh, the feed for my addiction. And, and that's all I knew as recovery in my, in my food addiction. And so, you know, uh, that lasted for almost two years. You know, finally, you know, I got to the place in my anorexia where I couldn't think. You know, and so I couldn't work. And, and my, my uh, employer at the time was very, very helpful. You know, I was able to take a leave of absence and stuff like that. But, you know, I was <laughs> for sure an unwelcome hanger on at, at this in this home because, you know, it, it, I could just feel it by her and, and by myself. But, you know, for the longest time, I never thought this paragraph applied to me, but it really, really did. You know, and today I don't have to do those things. You know, I'm a responsible, uh, working, self-supporting adult. So therefore, you know, I don't have to live with anybody to get whatever I need. I just, you know, I, I do that through the 12 steps and the transformation and through a power greater than myself that I can live on my own and be my own person and don't have to do what I don't want to do to get my needs met. And I'm so grateful to be on the line. And this is some great stuff. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks so much, Tina. Okay, Sharon Kay, it's your turn. Please go ahead. Good morning. It's Karen Kay from Syracuse, New York, uh, recovered compulsive eater. My credits don't transfer. You know, I, I also did not think this uh, paragraph applied to me. I remember uh, growing up in a home that from birth, from actual birth, uh, out of six children, um, that the aunts wanted to separate my brother and I because we were a year and a half apart. And so right from the get-go, I, I wasn't wanted. I wasn't cared about. Um, and the aunts just were pulling out the two of uh, my uh, sibling and I. So right right from there, and I remember coming from a place of great scarcity, uh, no food in the house. And my aunt uh, lived about a mile away. And so my mother would write, because we didn't even have a phone at right at that time. Um, I'm not dating myself. We just didn't have a phone. And I remember walking to my aunt's house and, and asking for food. And that was the uh, beginning of my begging days, uh, begging for food, begging for love, begging for attention. Um, and now that, you know, I've been blessed with some sobriety in other areas of my life and now have that uh, sobriety with food, I don't need to do those things today. 
Um, I, I'm just so grateful that I, I don't have to lie or steal. And what has been talked about in the past uh, that I've learned, the, vi- the vicarious thrills, you know, I don't, I pray to not to not to do them because I'm back in my disease. And uh, it's amazing. Every time I look at this book, it just gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And uh, I had to go out and buy another one. So um, I love all you guys. You guys saved my life. I need you every day. And you guys are all in my prayers. And um, a mass is being said for you today. Take care and God bless and be well. Thank you, Karen. All right. Leia T, it's your turn. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, moderator. Um, my name is Leia T. I'm a compulsive sober eater, recovering one day at a time in Connecticut. This is my very first time to share this Welcome. Meeting. Thank you. So scary. And um, this morning's reading just really got me in touch with my own sense of shame. There's so much shame in this story as Bill just pours out the truth of what his life was like. And it makes me think back to the truth of what my life was like when I was binging compulsively. That sense of shame made me irritable, made me want to control others, made me want to control outcomes. And I didn't even realize that losing food to cope with my environment and my emotions was something that I did for years, something that I put my family at work in. I'm so grateful that just see that it's painful to read this morning about that much shame. I think I'm a very empathetic, almost overly empathetic person, so if I read about shame, then I can very much get in touch with my own feelings. And also, it makes me think about all the dishonesty that I engaged in when I was eating completely. The sneakiness, the lies about how I had to be in certain places at a certain time, clearing the table or setting up and snatching extra food. It was was a full-time job. And I'm just really grateful to have this program to be living in recovery and that I can Thank you, Laity. And again, welcome. We're so glad to have you. And okay, Craig F., it's your turn. Please go ahead. Okay, this is Craig F., recovered in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Good morning. Um, Good morning. This uh, uh, chapter is the first um, time, usually when we're doing a step study, we start talking about uh, how we uh, ask ourselves the question, where did I think like Bill thought? Where did I act like Bill acted? Where did I uh, eat like Bill drank? And we we ask those questions because we're looking to identify. And, uh, you know, the, the disease will tell me that, uh, oh, I wasn't as bad as Bill. Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't that bad. I, I didn't do all those things that Bill did. did. That my recovery will tell me, well, to look for the similarities. You know, we're told that we don't have a uh, 
We don't have a definition of a compulsive overeater or an alcoholic. There's nowhere it says this is this is the number of times you had to have lost your job or this is the number of times you had to have, you know, missed an important appointment or uh, this is how you, this is how much you had to drink or this is how much you had to eat be, in order to be considered a compulsive overeater or, or an alcoholic. But um, we do have a description, and and this is part of the description. And we're going to go through uh, a lot of examples uh, in these first 164 pages, and they're all but they are all examples, and they're all. Uh, they're all to help us identify in and uh, uh, to know to 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 come to a peace you know i in myself about what i am um, i uh, uh, um, i've spent a lot of time wrestling with that you know i'd go to hear a speaker in a speaker meeting and and i'd say well i, I didn't do what that guy did you know i I'd come back and talk to my sponsor and I'd say, I, uh, this guy did this, this, and this, or this woman did this, this, and this. I doesn't, and, and, you know, I'd have to, he'd, he'd slow me down and make me stop and think, uh, where, where did I identify? Where, where was I like that? And, uh, you know, I, I certainly, uh, didn't get as low in the street. Most of us don't, uh, with food as Bill got here, you know, uh, but uh, there's no sense, there's no gain in using that to uh, to identify out, um, you know, because there are similarities and there are examples. There in the example, um, I'm uh, uh, I'm a compulsive overeater, and my and uh, uh, you know I'm I, my life is unmanageable by me and. Uh, uh, and my life is unmanageable most of the time, unmanaged. But time. I think that's my time. But yep. that uh, that doesn't mean that uh, I'm necessarily as low or as high as somebody in the book. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks so much, Craig. Beth W., it's your turn. Please go ahead. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Amy. This is Beth W. from North Dakota, Recovering Compulsive Overeater. Um, like many of the other shares, I couldn't see where I identified with Bill for a long time. And, um, I had this amazing moment just as we were listening this morning to, um, I think it was Reva who read it for us. And then, and then the other shares after that, um, I, I didn't work. It says for five years or real employment. And, um, that was me. I had, um, a, graduate degree, a college degree, a graduate degree, <clears throat> but I was perfectly happy to just uh, live off of my spouse's income. In fact, the, the joke I would say, and I thought I was super funny, was it's your job to earn the money, it's my job to spend it. And I couldn't manage the money. I would overdraft our checking, I would have to move money, I would have to, um, I would lie, I would, um, I wouldn't show him um, what was really happening with the money because I was so um, irresponsible. And what I really loved about him working and me not working was I had um, time with the children, which was great, but mostly it was about I couldn't wait for them to take a nap or get off to school. 
so that I could just be by myself. I, um, I always thought of myself as a really social person, an outgoing person, a, an extrovert, and really I isolated. And I um, would wait to the last minute to do anything. I would rush around the house at 4.30 or 5 o'clock before my spouse came home so it looked like I had done something all day. And really what I had done is really nothing but eat, drink, whatever I wanted to do, um, ruminate on my life. Um, and I was in a I was in a, a troubled marriage that I wasn't willing to admit. And uh, wow, I've um, I've I, I was that un, I was that hanger on. Oh my goodness, I've never noticed myself in this paragraph before until um, how illuminating it was. And I don't have to live like that today. I I can care for myself. Um, I live alone. I'm uh, self-supporting. I show up. Uh, for work and for life on a daily basis, and I can be of service to other people. And um, that's a huge uh, gift in this life, and that's all I have. I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you so much, Beth. Okay. Just a reminder, we're on page four, third paragraph. Just unpacking that one paragraph. Who else would like to share on what was read? Can I take about four people, three, four people? Madam. Matt? This is Susan. I'll share. Uh, hold on one second. Susan, did you say? G. Uh, Susan G. Susan G. Okay, who else? Madeline R. Madeline. Okay. Maybe one Marge more. O. Marge O. Yeah. Thank okay, you. Let's see how we go from there. All right, Matt M., Susan G., Madeline R., Marge O. Okay, Matt, you're up. Am I up? You are. Thank you for your service, Amy. This is Madam Compulsive over here from New Jersey. Um, yeah, um, I live on my own, but, you know, I'm trying to be self-supporting. And uh, I was definitely um, getting a lot of support from friends. I don't have much family, but I was using people to the point where I, they were doing everything for me, doing my food shopping, managing my money, and I was basically living like I felt like a five-year-old toddler having everything done for me, you know, and I'm an adult, you know, because I was just basically asking for too much help. And I had, and I realized I had finally realized I hit my bottom. I had to start doing things for my own, on my own again. But, you know, but I was desperate for help because I was eating my way back up to 660 pounds again. I'm definitely a low bottom, but I'm just another, I finally realized I'm just another bozo on the bus. I, I need need to work this program as Harlan says as Harlan says, you know, this person is just not for people who need it, for people who want it. It's for people who are willing to do the work, who need to do the work and I'm finally doing the work, but you know, um my body is, you know, is finally giving out on me, you know. Um my I have a lot of health issues, you know, being at a at the size that I'm at and um I finally hit my rock bottom and um even though I'm living on my own, it is a very isolating disease. This disease does uh take no prisoners, you know, it's it's a cuddling fashion powerful disease and uh you know, and um I'm reaching out in a positive way. Um I'm working the steps right now. I'm all the way on step ten right now as of today. Uh I made my amends started making my amends yesterday and um I'm starting on ten, eleven, twelve and um I'm working I'm, I'm working the program as if my if I'm, if my pants are on fire because it is my life is my life is at stake. This is life or death issue 
as someone has passed away. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us, but uh, she she was recovered. Um, I have tombstones in my eyes. I had tombstones in my eyes, and um, um, I'm working it. And um, I I want to be around, you know, to help others as well as myself because this disease this disease does take lives, you know, um, just as much as anything else any other um, illness does, you know. Just because they don't have like a, a respirator on my face or like a IV in my arms, you know, you know, it's it's, it's true, you know. Um, you know, it's it's just it is like a cancer, and I'm very grateful that uh, I I have uh, the support of everybody in the room, and I have support, I do have support of friends, and I'm very grateful I'm still here. You know, I'm really grateful that um, my my recovery comes first, and I'm glad that I'm able to think about that and have the willingness, my higher powers help, and you know, I'm very grateful I have the um, that I'm, I'm here today. With all of you, with that I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Susan G., please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, this is Susan G. Uh, I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. And um, this paragraph, uh, when I first read it, um, you know, it, inside of me, I guessed at um, just the, the downward spiral of uh, Bill's life, and um, and I thought right away, I always make uh, a comparison, um, I'm not that bad, I was never that bad, and uh, um, alcohol is, 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 is different than food, and food doesn't uh, do that to people, and, you know, just um, uh, ruminate with me, and I... I, you know, I reflect and I see how for me uh, and my view is that um, food is, is just like the alcohol. It, um, it just destroys every part of uh, my life uh, when I was eating compulsively. Um, it's different in the sense of, you know, the outward effect of someone, you know, being drunk on alcohol versus drunk on food, but, you know, I know what that's like to be drunk on food and how it steals um, the self-esteem, um, my self-esteem, how it steals my ability to believe uh, in myself and to function in the world, and this program gives me back a way uh, by working the steps uh, to to lead a service-filled life, a happy life, a life where um, I can trust God and trust my decisions based on you know consulting with God, working the steps, um, being with my fellows. But um, I just I just wanted to share how you know I. You know, I look at those words and say, no, no, that's that's an alcoholic. That's not a foodaholic. You know, and no, for me, uh, eating is just it, it did the same thing. It it started to take away. It did take away my life for many years, and um, I'm so grateful for this program and my fellows. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you I so doubt. much. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Susan. 
All right, Madeline R., it's your turn. Please go ahead. Madeline, press star one. Hi, so sorry. This is Madeline R. I couldn't unmute. Um, I am a recovered compulsive eater here in Pennsylvania, and I wanted to thank everybody for their shares and for their service. And I definitely have um, some identification with this paragraph. Of course, not exactly the same way. Um, I remember when we built our new home, it almost felt like we had arrived. Um, we had both come out of uh, tumultuous relationships. We were totally separate, independent people before we actually got married. We were together five years before. We built a brand new home. Um, and I remember walking through the threshold of the house and we were finally moving in the van, you know, the moving van was here, moving in all of our furniture and things. And I was thinking like, this is it. I'm never gonna be involved in my addiction again. Like, this is it. Um, I had been in programs since 1990. This was um, 90 the mid 95, 96. And I thought, for sure, this is it. I've got my new start. But guess what followed me? You know, I soon found the little um, store at the corner. And they had these confectionaries and I would stop there and I'd get the three for a dollar ones on the way home. And then um, I was working, you know, in a town up from me. And then I would stop at three restaurants before I even came home. And I just thought that that the arriving and doing so well in the ge geographical cure was going to make a difference in my life, and it hadn't, you know. And had I experienced that before? Oh, absolutely. You know, I recall um, not knowing how to deal with any type of feelings for the disruptions and the emotions being at such a height that I was either in a good mood or a bad mood, I had to calm myself down. You know, I had to bring myself up or l help myself pass out, you know. So I have a lot of identification with this particular paragraph. It's me. I did the same things that I'm reading here with my food plan. You know, my husband would already start dinner and I'd walk in the house and lie on the couch and say, I can't eat. I'd wake up the next, because of course I've eaten all the way home. Um, the one time I had garbage in my food because I bought it from, you know, one of the glorified gas stations and part of the wrapper was inside of it, you know, when they cut it at the deli. And I'm sleeping on the couch, you know, passed out, fully clothed the next day, having to get up and take a shower and go back to work to the arrived job, you know. And so I'm so grateful that this is written in here and that I was taught that, you know, we don't look at how we're different. We look at how we can identify. Thank you so much. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks so much, Madeline. Marge O, please go ahead. Thank you. Can I be heard? I can hear you great. Thank you very much. Just um, wanted to put, um, as I said, take the seat on the recovery bus. I'm so grateful. We covered here in Walpole, Massachusetts, where it is blessingly cool. And um, I, I so identify with this paragraph and with everybody sharing, especially being a young mother and just waiting for the kids to go take a nap so I could stuff my face, fall asleep, wake up, smoke and eat, and spend money. That's how I spent my time back then. And I didn't recognize that I had a disease. I just thought I was uh, living life the way I wanted to live life. I had no idea that I was you know, living the life of an alcoholic except that I was doing it with food, cigarettes, and money. And um, I'm eternally grateful that in my late 30s, I found OA and was very blessed to be able to be introduced to the big book at that time in my life. We only read it once a month, but we were all there, 
and I had no problem identifying with uh, what the alcoholic did with their with their drink as regards in regards to how I used food, cigarettes, money, anything that I could to make me feel better or allow me to feel better. And guess what? I never really did feel better. It would last 10 minutes, whatever it was, a new outfit, a new car, food, go shopping so that so that I could eat lunch at 11:30 and go out to eat and, and have anything I wanted. It was so absurd and yet I thought it was totally normal. It was just bizarre. And then when I realized, thank God for the steps, thank God that I was able to learn how to ask people <clears throat> make my how to make my amends and how to forgive myself too because it was such an embarrassing time when I realized how I was living. So I thank you and thank you all for your support. With that, I pass. Thank you so much, Marge O. Okay, so we have time for probably a two-minute share. Who would like to take us out? Barbara M. You're the one. Please go ahead. Hi, I'm Barbara M. from Pennsylvania, and I'm so grateful that all of you are here, and I'm amazed that in the one week that I've been listening of how it's propelled me forward. Um, I started the program a really long time ago and walked away thinking, okay, I'm cured, and then came back and struggled, um, especially over this last year. And when I read this paragraph this morning, I thought I, I couldn't relate to it until I heard others share, and I realized that my whole life, it's been about my neediness and my hanging on to others to take care of, do for me, provide for me. And um, one of the other things that I thought about that was how um, when someone shared about the impact on my family, because I never really thought about that, um, I've always thought about their impact on me and feeling resent, resentful towards them, like for their problems uh, affecting me. But when I truly look at it, I can see how much I've impacted them, my addictive uh, behavior, um, and the amends that I need to make. Even though I've made them before, I'm now seeing that they were not authentic. And I think that's what I'm realizing even more now doing the program is how disingenuous I've been. Well, I'll say that, you know, I wasn't ready. It's taken me a long time. Uh, I'm a hard case, and I realize that Everything that I've done has gotten me to this point, and okay. that's all. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Barbara. And on that note, we're going to wrap things up. I'd like to thank everyone who shared, and thank you again to Team Wednesday for your service. Please join us for another awesome hour, unrecorded hour study immediately following the closing. 
the share ID for today's meeting, Wednesday, September 9, 2020, 7 a.m. Eastern Time Vision for You meeting is 15,322. That's 15322. We will now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Leon B., could you please take us out with the vision for you? Good morning, Leon B., gratefully recovered from Simpsonville, South Carolina. My book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.